parable, the prodigal son. This is now we're entering into uh, a bit of a, a shift in terms of where we've been and, and where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks as we bring it to a point of conclusion. But um, as many of us are aware, we've been focusing predominantly on this prodigal son himself, who is the central piece of the story that Jesus gave. But also we've been focusing on the father as well. And the father, his blessing, these are, these are the two prominent figures that are in the story. But there's a third. And the third, this older son, as we shall see, was something of an unexpected inclusion in this. And uh, we're just going to read, we'll read together from the 15th chapter. We're picking right up at the middle of the story. Uh, Jesus, and we spent a lot of time here already, so I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to read it through. It says, but when he came to himself, Jesus is saying when the prodigal came to himself, when he finally bottomed out and had come to the end, he started thinking about things. And he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And here I am perishing with hunger. I will arise. I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. Let's celebrate. For my son was dead, verse 24, but he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to be merry. They began to celebrate. And that's where it could have ended, should have ended, and many people thought would have been very happy with the ending right there. It would have been consistent with the other two stories that he had told preceding it. The story of the lost coin that was found, the lost sheep that was recovered. Now, obviously, the lost son comes home. He's forgiven. He's loved. He didn't deserve it. It's all about the grace of God. It makes total sense. Yeah, we want to say, yes, Lord, we thank you that you receive us when we're not worthy. It's a great picture of the heart of God, everything that Jesus taught us about God's love. It was perfect, and yet Jesus probably paused and then surprised his audience because what he does next is he brings back to the fore a figure that had simply been skimmed over earlier in the story. He brings back the older son. And he says, oh yeah, one more thing. Remember the older brother? This is what we read. Now the older brother, the older son, was in the field. What was he doing in the field? He was working. He was working in the field. He was serving his father in the field. What a contrast to his younger brother who had chosen to cash it all in and live it up while he stayed at home working faithfully, doing his duty, serving his father in the house's interests. He's the, when Jesus starts the painting, as it were, of the older son, he begins by saying he was out in the fields, and the implication is he's working. Because that's what he does. He works. He's faithful. He's committed. He doesn't go off into the far country and waste things. He's the one that is doing what needs to be done. That's how he sees himself. That's the picture Jesus gives us. It says that when he was in the field, it says he heard, he came, and as he was getting near, maybe he's coming back towards the house. We're given a picture of a large estate, and as he's coming back to the house, the central location of the property, 
or the where there's something happening that he wasn't uh, it didn't make sense it didn't register he wasn't aware of what was going on because the people there was music there was dancing he he could hear it in the distance and he finally it says here he calls one of the servants who probably was running around because it seems to be a picture of quite a frenzy quite a commotion and he says hey what's going on and to the servant he says come and, and tell me he says what what is all the music and the celebration and what's happening nobody told me about it as you didn't hear Oh, what did he hear? Your brother. Remember your brother? He, he was lost. We thought he'd never come back. He doesn't look so good, but he's home. And father's happy. He's so happy. In fact, he, got, he says, we're, we're going to have a celebration. And he, said, and he told us to go get the, the fatted calf, the one that we had set, the fatted calf, the one that was set aside for the special moment, the special guest of honor. Remember that one? Yeah, that one is the one that he says, now is the day. We're actually going to, we're just going to celebrate. We're going to feast. We're going to eat. Isn't it wonderful? Aren't you amazed? Hurry up. Yeah, it's just real great, right? And it's wonderful. It's beautiful. The older brother says, he says he was angry. Thanks for the news. Now I'll catch up. And like a lot of us do, when we, when something happens, somebody says something to us, somebody tells us something, something occurs that actually the exact opposite effect of making us happy is what happens. He was angry. Jesus says it very clearly. And later on, we're going to see the reason for his anger. But he was angry. He, he felt that this was inappropriate. How could we celebrate someone who had been so reckless? How could we celebrate someone? How, how do you expect me to go back in there and celebrate when he wasted everything. Well, I stayed here. There's no party. I'm not going to party for him. I don't care. That's the implication. It's the picture that Jesus says that he was angry. You almost get the picture of him with his arms crossed. Saying, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'll tell you one thing. It didn't happen. I, I'm not going down there. It's just not happening. It's the picture of one unable to rejoice in the blessing. Now, remember we've been in our prodigal series here, we've been interacting with the painting from Rembrandt, his interpretation of this parable's key moment, crucial moment, the return of the prodigal. And we've spent a lot of time looking and observing the centerpiece of the painting that was rendered by this great master artist at the end of his life. We talked about Rembrandt's own brokenness and how he probably identified greatly, not only in the physicality of the age of the father, but really in the spiritual component of the brokenness of the son. There was an element of his life that was in shambles, and when he came, you get the impression this is painted by a broken man who understands something of the love of God. And, this, and the painting itself, we mentioned this, brings us to the light of it, the way it's set up, the way it's presented. It, it draws us into the moment of blessing, the moment of release. It, everything's about the hands. The light is on the hands. It's about the blessing and the, father, uh, the Father's blessing the release, be forgiven, your home. I mean, it has everything to do with that. And yet, what's often not noted nearly as much, and, and rightfully so, is the fact that there are other things happening in the picture. There are, there are at least four other figures. When you look at the resolution on the screen and the, the, on the handout, you really only see three. We only see three. But uh, if, if you can see it on a computer or in a different kind of a print, in fact, the print in the foyer shows the fourth figure. The fourth figure is often overlooked, and, and it's not necessarily that it's filled with meaning. It's just it's there. 
and it seems to be a young woman in the background as well looking. And she would be, in the, if we were looking at it this way, it would be the far left-hand corner. And Rembrandt places these figures, and increasingly as you go from left to right, they gain in luminescence to the point that they, it rests, the light actually shows up on this fourth figure on the right-hand side. The fourth figure is clearly meant as we are drawn in. It's almost like he's saying, we become part of the onlooking audience beholding this moment. What are we going to say about it? But he brings our attention strategically with his light and the usage in his space and the way he balances the painting. He brings our attention to the, what is the older brother. You can clearly see the connection between the father and the older brother. Look at what they're wearing. They share the same red tunic. It would have emphasized something. The turbans are the same. The beard is this. Everything about these two are the same. There's even a, there's even a sense that, that he has, in fact, Rembrandt does this intentionally. He places, and you can, if you look closely, you can see it. There's this staff. It's thin. But that staff is placed there. His hands are on it. It's, it's meant to represent authority. The staff belonged to the one in authority. It speaks to the fact that the older brother is looking. It's, it's fascinating because Rembrandt, by placing the older brother in the painting, he essentially does something that Jesus didn't do because in the passage it's clear that these three people, the sons, the two sons and the father, are never actually together, certainly not at the reunion. But what Rembrandt does is he creates a moment that doesn't exist because he's trying, he only has one shot at telling this story. He's trying to create the essence of it in all of its complexity. And so he brings these three elements together to create a moment. And this is his interpretation, and we're invited to do so, to wrestle with the stories that Jesus gives us. And the way he pictures the older brother is fascinating as well. In contrast to the father who's bent over, in contrast to the father who's clearly welcoming and blessing, and, and there's a certain just enveloping component. You can see this, the rigidity, the, which is accented by the staff, the way the hands are placed. There's a reluctant, look at the hands, the difference in the hands alone. One hand is open and blessed, the others are clasped, unsure reluctant to, to do anything. The look is one fact people have thought of, have tried to consider, why did he put that, why did he do this? Why didn't he show him more angry? Possibly he's pushing forward into the parable. He's asking the same question that Jesus asked. What is the older brother going to really do? There's this look on his face, though, of you can't tell, but you can see the distance, the distance alone between the two. I mean, Rembrandt could have placed the prodigal in the middle. He places him at the side. In, in a way, it's about two, two stories. There's a clearly a looking, what am I going to do? Is there distance? There's reluctance. There's an unwillingness to participate in the moment. Will he do it? Will he wish move forward? Or will he stay away? This is the question. This is the question Jesus posed. It was the question he posed to the people he was talking to, the Pharisees. He was saying, what are you going to do about this? Pretty powerful stuff. It, when, you know, when Jesus talks about it, he, he clearly paints it far more vividly. He doesn't create uh, the older brother as being somehow, you know, wrestling with it in his heart. All, you know, the picture Jesus gives us is not of one passively resisting, but one of initially angry. There is a, a vividness to the way in which Jesus conveys the older brother's attitude. He is one hurt. He is one wounded. He is one angry. And so I'm going to lay a couple of ideas out here. I want to suggest that in the parable, that the way that Jesus captures this, this reluctance on his part to go in, that his anger really was a choice, a chosen response. 
In other words, the angry response is, is something that he intentionally decided. What am I talking about? He decides that because he does not agree with this celebration because of what the brother, his brother has done and how he left, that, there is, that, that he is, his way of protesting is, I'm not going in. You can have this party, but if you think I'm showing up to it, you're mistaken. I'll never sign off on this thing. He deserves nothing. In fact, he probably would agree with Prodigal's assessment. Prodigal said, what? I'm not worthy to be. He said, I'm going to tell my father I'm not worthy to be called your son, and he does. I'll just ask him if I can be a hired servant. That's all I deserve, if that. Older brother would have said, you're right. Absolutely right. You're not worthy, and I don't, want, I don't consider you one. You gave it up, man. You took off. I'm the one that's been working. Have you noticed? Where's my party? It's going to come up. It's going to come up. Going to show up. I do not, his, the, the chosen response, you know, we do that, all, we do this too. We get upset. We get mad. We get hurt. And we, we, we protest. You know, we will not. I will not go in. I will not do this. Oh, you think that's, I'm just going to pretend like this didn't happen? No way. You're going to pay. You're going to own this thing. You know what the irony was? Again, the, the younger son, he, he, they, by the way, they were both wrong. They were both wrong. The father surprised them both. The younger son thought, I'm not worthy. And the father said, yeah, I know, but you know what? I love you so much. The older brother said, he's not worthy. And the father says, I know, but I love him so much. Both of them had the correct opinion. The older brother said, he doesn't deserve it. The younger one said, I don't deserve it. And they both were right for different reasons. I said, it's not about that. It's about my heart. I long to bless him. Son, you can't be, you say you're not worthy. I get it. But this is not about you right now. You're sorry. Look, we're going to have a party, and it's all about you coming home because you were dead to me, and now you're alive. And I love that. And so guess what? You don't have time to mourn. You're going to have to rejoice because this is all about you coming home. But I don't deserve, I don't understand that. I understand that. That's what we call grace. The older brother is saying, he doesn't deserve it. That's not right. It's not fair. It's not just. The, the fact is, I've been the one working in the field. He's been fooling around. Now all of a sudden, he gets bled. What are you talking? I'm not going in. You love him more. See, this is, this is the core. This is the centerpiece. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is a lot of stuff that we're wrestling with. Now, I'm going to suggest, and here's the second thought, that a lot of our anger, a lot of our resentment um, flows out of our insecurities. This is the second piece. It, it's, it flows out of our insecurities. And what that does is it undermines our ability to live the joy-filled life. It, whenever we choose to allow anger, resentment, or hurts, the hurts of life which are inevitable to define us, we undercut God's desire to fill our life with his joy. And in so doing, we undermine his ability to let blessing flow through us to others and increase the likelihood of something other than blessing flowing from us to others. The phrase that I use is hurt people hurt people, but bless people, bless people. In John 15, 11, Jesus said this. He said that, you know, these things I've spoken to you, I've given you my words, 
at least part of the reason that I've given you my words is that I would want my joy to be in your life. And I want your joy to be filled up. And he wasn't saying that just because he was denying that there were problems in life or difficulties. Jesus said, in this world, we will have tribulation. There are things that are going to happen. It's unfair. He talked about difficulties. He says, we're living in a broken world. That's why I've come to die, to take away the sin of this world. I mean, he talked about that all the time. He himself was rejected. He was, he was betrayed. He was wounded. He suffered. He experienced disappointment. Look, th- he wasn't denying that part of life. What he was saying was, through it all, though, the joy of the Lord, I want it to be able to move in your life. Don't be defined by the unfairness of life. Be defined by my joy. And I want to fill your life with it. And maybe it shows up most amazingly when it's least expected. Look, he went on to say this in in Matthew, and I referred to this one last week, this passage in in Matthew 11 last week. But Jesus said, and this is when he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and heavy laden. He says, Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And you will find what? Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Okay, we read that, and we don't really, as kind of modern people, not so much familiar with the agricultural language that Jesus was employing in that passage. Jesus was talking about a yoke that was off a piece of wood that was placed around uh, the oxen that would plow a field. And he was, this was a very vivid image for a lot of people. It was attached to another crossbar. The, uh, by the way, as I did research on this, the, 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 the yoke that fit around the two oxen, usually there was a strong one and a weak one that were placed together, was fitted, if, you were a, if it was someone who cared about their oxen, they would, they would bring that wood and the measurements and a, a carpenter would create a, a yoke that was appropriate for the oxen so it didn't hurt them. Gorgium and actually ended up producing greater effectiveness. And so and interesting because Jesus was, in his natural trade, he was a carpenter. He worked with wood. He said, it, it, when they said, my yoke is easy, my yoke is fitted for you. It fits well. That was the picture. It costs something to follow Christ, but it is not a restrictive thing. It is actually a life-giving. That's what he was saying. In contrast to, it's not an overlay of rules for rules' sake. What I ask of you, what I ask you to move with me in, is designed to bring life. You know, Peterson, in his paraphrase, it's the message translation, but it's really a paraphrase. But he paraphrased this passage in, an, in a pretty impressive way. Just look at what it says. It says, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythm of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn. I love this. You'll learn how to live what? Freely and lightly. It has to, following Jesus has to do at least in part with learning how to live freely and lightly. And I thought, how many times, Lord, you know, have we found ourselves stuck in things? Because Jesus is saying, I want you to live in such a way where we're not defined, um, where we're by, by things that are just brewing inside of us, that, that we are learning how to live lightly, unoffended, unembittered that we're not allowing things to um, diminish us. And I'm not talking about living naively or disconnected from reality, but I'm saying increasingly free of dark anger, uh, pettiness, resentment, cynicism, unforgiveness, bitterness. 
a lot of the stuff that really is a result of other people, things that we've experienced, other people letting us down, hurting us, whatever, that garbage, the stuff, the junk that gets in there. And, it, and it, if we're not careful, it starts to defy us. It affects our ability to bless. It, Jesus is saying, don't live like that. Don't let go. And see, and, and I'm thinking about that, Lord, what? Because a lot of times our anger, it doesn't, it, some people's anger shows up and it just, you, you flip the switch and it's just there. And you better watch out. Other people have a low-grade anger. Live with it. It's just ne- it doesn't necessarily show up like a fireworks, but it's just there. It's, 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 it's heard. It's connected to something. It's, it's, a, it's an inability to rejoice. It, it has to do with projecting stuff. It, I've been hurt. I'm, I'm angry about that hurt. It, it's something I can't get free of. I, mean, I talk to people all the time, and it's like, it's just so hard. I want to do it. I can't. I'm so mad. I feel taken advantage of. You know, Henry Nouwen was talking about um, this. He was the author. He wrote, he, he, one of the things about Henry Nouwen, remember he was the, the author who in his uh, book that had to do with the prodigal's return, he was talking about this painting that we looked at. And he actually said, you know what he said? I, he said, I relate to all three of the figures in the painting, he said. He goes, I relate to, he goes, first he goes, early on in my life, I just kind of started, he says, I related to the prodigal son. He goes, because I was so broken. He goes, I, and I was reminding of how much I needed the blessing. He goes, so every time I saw that painting, he goes, I always saw myself, if, I, if somebody had said, well, who, why do you like it so much? Who are you in the painting? He says, I'm the prodigal. I'm the one right there. I feel his blessing. He goes, that's what spoke to me. He goes, but as time went on, as the years went by, he goes, the painting started to speak to me in a different way. He said, over time, I started to see myself more like the older brother. He said, I found myself actually actually at a point where there were things going into me that I was having a hard time celebrating, that I was having a hard time letting the joy of the Lord, that I was holding things, that I, was, I had grudges in my heart. I was having a hard time rejoicing for the blessing of others. He told this one story. And then, by the way, and later on, he says, and I, later on in his life, he says, I begin to identify more with the aged father. The older he got, he says, I began to see myself as one who was being kept alive to bless. And I'm part of my my calling in life is to be a blesser of people, men and women, and to say, in the name of Jesus, I bless you. But he says on this one candid moment where he was talking about his tendency to identify with the older brother, and and I even had put in your handout this little piece by him um, in which he talks about how joy and resentment cannot coexist. But he tells this story about an incident that occurred in his life. I'm just going to share it real quick with you. He says this. He says, I have a very, because again, he's identifying with the older brother and his resentment, his refusal to go in. And he says, I have this very vivid memory of a similar situation. Stay with me. He says this. Once when I felt quite lonely, I asked a friend to, to go and hang out with me. Although, although he replied that he didn't have any time, a little bit later on, I found him just not too long after that, at a mutual friend's house where a party was going on. And he goes, seeing me, he said, hey, welcome. Join us. Great to see you. He says, but my anger was so great at not being told about the party that I I couldn't stay. All of my inner complaints about not being accepted, not being liked, not being loved, surged up in me, and I left the room. In fact, I slammed the door behind me. I was completely, he says, incapacitated, unable to rejoice and participate in the joy that was there in an instant. The joy in that room had become for me a source of resentment. He says, this experience of not being able to enter into the joy is the experience of a resentful heart. 
And then he says this, the elder son couldn't enter into the house and share in the father's joy at his returning brother. His inner complaint paralyzed him and let the darkness engulf him. His inner complaint paralyzed him and let the darkness engulf him. I won't go in. Come on, son. Now, you know what? That sets us up for one of the most beautiful things. Jesus could have used so many different words, but you know what he says? The father went out. Look at verse 28. He says the father, when he hears the news, that he's not coming. I'm not going in. He begins to realize probably at a certain point it dawns on him, where's your brother? Does he know about it? I know. I told him. He said, I told him what was going on. What do you mean? It says that the father, when he realizes he isn't going, coming in, he, <laughs> he goes out and he begins to plead with him. Now, this is beautiful to me because he doesn't say, that big baby, which is what many of us would have said. If he's so small and so, you know, selfish, that he can't even rejoice in the fact that his brother, who was dead essentially to us, has come home? What's wrong with him? If he, if he doesn't want to, then leave him out. Self-righteous, judgmental, mean-spirited boy. He needs to get with the program. But that's not the picture. The love is stretching in both directions. Because you know what it says the Father does? And it's the same thing God does with us. He goes out there and he says, he pleads with him. He says, son, come on now. Think about it. That's the picture of the father pleading. He's saying, come on now. I know you're hurt. I know you're angry. Come on. You can't let that be the issue. Can't you? Come on. Isn't there something in there? He's your brother. He's been dead. I know he did it. I know what he did. I know. I understand that. I get it. But come on. Don't let that stop you from entering into what this is. This is a special moment. This is a, we're supposed to be together here. Don't let that define you. Don't let that chain you up and lock you up. Get out of that. Come on in. Quit it. Stop that. This the pleading. There's a pleading going on, right? It's like, it's like the Lord. You know, there are times where you and I, we got reasons why we're justifying our attitude, our, our loveless attitude. And this will be the, again, we talked about this, how I'm going to just put this, this will be the last thing we'll say, is that he will reach to us even when our attitudes are loveless and unbecoming. His love is such that he will come and he will work with us. That the Lord, and I have known this in my own life, and I'll tell you, it's the truth that God will meet us in our place of resistance. He will, when we are being locked up on stuff and, and we are being hurt and we're going to make sure that person pays. And I understand boundaries. I understand owning things. I get all that. That's not, we're not making a, uh, every detailed explanation. The Lord is getting at something deeper. He's talking about our tendency to let things keep us from being able to move forward in the joy of the Lord. The things that bog us down, define us, the hurts of life, that once they get inside of us, it, it minimizes and undermines our capacity to bless, to enter into what he has for us. You know, a lot of us, sometimes we, we get, by the way, we can get offended when someone else gets a blessing that we wanted. And sometimes we're, we're thinking their blessing is my loss. I'm not going to rejoice in that. How can I rejoice? so hard to be really happy for you. And the Lord is saying, come on. He'll challenge us. 
Or maybe we're holding on to something and we're not letting it go. We're, gonna, we're not going to take a chance anymore. We're not going to enter in. We're going to play it safe. We're going to stay, you know, God's saying, you know what happens is when we sign on to follow Jesus, he, signed, he basically was saying, I'm signing up to grow. And part of growing is mean I'm going to be open to what the Lord's trying to do in my life. And a lot of times God's going to get right at something that we're saying, well, I don't want to go there and I don't hear it and I'm not listening. And the Lord's saying, but I want to talk to you about that. Come on. And the Lord will plead with us. And there will come times where the Holy Spirit, and that's one of the values of having a group or being involved in a ministry, having community, where when the Lord is dealing with us about these things, we might be reading the Bible, and all of a sudden it's like the Lord is speaking to us very clearly. And we're, what are we going to do about that? How, what are we going to do when we're being pleaded with, when we're being challenged, when the Holy Spirit is probing in our heart to respond, to let go of that thing? Don't let it define you. But you don't know what they did. They hurt me. They betrayed me. I'm not going to take a chance. If you think I'm going to sign off on that, it's not going to be that easy. They're not going to get that joy. That joy is being withheld. And I'm not saying in every case there's a one set rule. But what I am saying is a lot of times the Lord is trying to get right in there and say, don't let that define you. Quit it. Follow me. Live as one love. Live, in my, live lightly in my yoke. Live unoffended in my yoke. Life's too short to live it mad. Be free. He or she whom the Lord says free is free. We get wrapped up in life because there's so many reasons too. We can't control other people. I can't. At the end of the day, there's some people I wish I could control everything. I can't. And, the more, and if we try to, we'll mess it up. Some, the one thing we can, we can own this right here, our heart before God, and we can say, Lord, I need to be open. I want to be open. I'm trying. Lord, help me. The grace of God. It but here's the thing. The Lord will work with us. He works. No. Come on. No. I won't do it. Son, come on. I love you. All that I have is yours. We're going to see it next week. Come on. See, what are we going to do when God's trying to remind you, you can't forgive, you've been forgiven. I don't know. The Lord wants to help us get better on things and to be the, again, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be a people who are increasingly able to extend the blessing of the Lord in every direction of our life. Many of us, Lord, have not known what it is like really to be blessed. Some of us have. In either case, Lord, we need to define ourselves by who you say we are. And you say we are loved by you, that we are to find ourselves in you, that we are to receive the blessing of the Lord, that we are to find our identity in who you say we are. Lord, help us to be a big people. Help us to be free of those things, Lord, that would chain us up and, and diminish your capacity to move. Lord, remind us that when we're hurt, we hurt. But when we see ourselves as one blessed, we bless. We all at some level are wounded healers, but we have been called as followers of you to heal and to bless, to be life givers. And that means we're going to have to own things in our own heart, Lord. But I thank you again that you challenge us, that your love is such that you reach out to us even in our stubbornness, our willfulness and our pride and our reluctance to join the celebration. You still pursue us. Such is your grace and love for us. Set us free. And Lord, I pray as we close the service out, the song that talks directly about it, that speaks to what we're talking about, this freedom in Christ. I pray that you'd bless this, these closing minutes. 
bless the rest of our day. Bless, Lord, the weeks ahead that we would grow with you and listen for your voice. And, and also, Lord, bless our time of giving as we close out the service. Be honored in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, Lord. Amen. God, let it be, Lord. Thank you.